Welcome to Real Talk JavaScript, the weekly talk show with advice and insight into the technologies and practices currently being used to build web applications in the real world. Each week, John Papa and Ward Bell talk to industry experts about their experiences writing, deploying, and maintaining web applications in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And now, here are your hosts, John and Ward. Welcome to episode number one of a Real Talk JavaScript. Today, our first guest is Brian Holt. Brian is currently working as a senior cloud developer advocate at Microsoft, and he's all about developers, developers, developers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Previously, he was a JavaScript engineer at Netflix, LinkedIn, and Reddit, so he's been around the block. And when not working, Brian finds time to teach front-end masters, run his mouth off on front-end happy hour, travel all over the world, and play with his adorable dog. Brian's currently a resident of Seattle, Washington. Welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me on. This is great. And we're very excited to talk to you about our topic today, which coincides with our mailbag ward. Yes, that's right. Uh, this being our very first episode, our mailbag is a little thin, but I reached into it this morning and I pulled out one. It says here from Lady Gaga. Mm. She says, John, I follow you uh, all the time uh, about Angular when I'm not on tour. And the thing is that I keep hearing so much about React. I'm wondering if you can tell us anything about it. So how fortunate that we have Brian here, unless, John, you want to talk about React. I think that's the point of Brian being on the show, actually. So I think we'll, we'll leave that there. And we should probably, before we kick into talking about uh, React at scale, which is what Brian's talk is all about today, we should kind of give a few moments to talk about what this podcast is about, Ward, don't you think? I do. Uh, we're very excited. This is our, our very first one. You and I have been in many other podcasts and we listen to podcasts that talk about technologies that are coming out, um, what people think of, what they might be like, and they're talking very theoretically. And we love those shows. We're all still on those shows. Um, but you and I were really keen on the idea of trying to actually have one that's talking about, you know, how we actually live with the technologies we use and to try and get some, some concrete advice to get under the hood, to find out where the real challenges are, to not just put the, oh, wow, that's cool on it. And so it's really exciting to start this podcast with you, John, on that. And it's going to be great to have our guests talking about how they actually live the technology instead of how they imagine the technology might be. So with that, did you have some words on this, John, or for yourself? I, I'm so excited about this work because I agree. It's great. Like I listen to so many podcasts and I love hearing about new technologies and new features all the time, but I, we really wanted to flip the script on this, which is hopefully what's going to interest all of you out there as well. And figuring out, okay, we've got challenges we face every day with development, with the web, with JavaScript, with everything. How do we tackle those? Getting somebody like Brian in here who's built large-scale systems for big companies to figure out what kind of challenges did Brian face? What did he have to make decisions upon? What did he weigh in those decisions? How did those things turn out? Did they all turn out like roses or did some of those not turn out so great? And what would you do differently knowing now what you know then? Things that we can actually take and use in real life from people who've built large real world systems. And I know Ward, you've built a lot of really large systems for big customers. Uh, I've had a big experience working with a lot of large companies building apps as well. Uh, and that's what got us excited about this is the technology is definitely part of the show, 
but this is more about what problems are we all trying to solve and what can we help each other with? So, and, and while today is about large as, and, and what scale does, um, it's important to note that you, you, you know, a lot of us out there aren't necessarily building big things, but we're building real things, things that people are going to live with for a while. Um, and so they're, they're not the demos, you know, we're responsible for seeing that these applications live on and do what they're supposed to do. So we may be in a big team, we may be in a small one, but we have responsibilities. Brian, do you have responsibilities in life? <laughs> I don't know. You should ask my manager. so let's get started let's get in there you know this is billed as react at scale what does scale mean and what difference does it make i think that's kind of a term i'd like to explore a little bit because when you talk about scaling things i think people typically think about going from one server to five servers and five servers to 15 servers and we're talking about like kubernetes and cloud deployments and things like that uh which is definitely a big part of scale but we're really hyper focused on performance with lots of uh, moving parts in the, in the mix. But I also think we should be talking about uh, more things like scaling the human teams, right? Like scaling from, you know, one team to five teams and five teams to 15 teams. And, or, uh, you know, we're going to do a large-scale refactor and how do we, you know, refactor this application without, you know, breaking everything in the midst. And so I think there's a lot of terms that we need to really unpack here before we can really settle on you know, one definition. Even the word large sometimes I think gets overused because what's large to you may be not large to somebody else, for example. And I'm not even sure that's a good word to use overall. Yeah. Maybe more in a, like a relative sense, right? Like larger yeah. than I was before. Yeah. More than one person. So, so there's everything from one person to doing something, which we, I think we can all agree is not large, but in organizations, you know, you, you from one to five is one challenge. Then as soon as you get 10 people, that seems to be another tipping point. And then when you talk 20, 50 people, it's another tipping point. So, and I'm just making those numbers up. So, I guess if you were asking, I'd like to know the human dimension more than the performance dimension. Um, so, tell us how the human dimension plays in in, in terms of what you, your experience with scale. Yeah, sure. Uh, I think like the first one that we could talk about was uh, working at Reddit. Uh, I was hired as a director of development at Reddit and I was director of myself for a long time. So that meant I, I got to do everything. I was actually writing Angular at the time. Uh, this was before I got into React. And so, you know, I had the entire code base in my head because, you know, that was, that was it. That was the only person writing it. So the only way that JavaScript code was making to the code base was me. Uh, and as we had, you know, some more success going forward, we started hiring more and more people and it, we kind of had to shard some of that, that knowledge out to other people. And so that's when, uh, we just ran into some challenges, right? There's a huge difference between one person writing it and two people writing it. It's just massive because at some point you have to trust people and you have to coordinate and have tickets and issues and all these kind of different things. And then from there, going from, you know, two people to 10 people, that was just a whole different challenge unto itself. And then now, you know, they're scaling out to, you know, 400 engineers instead of just two. So there, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of growing pain in that process there. I imagine a lot of processes in themselves, outside of the human factor, there's a lot of processes that had to be implemented that probably were needed in some ways and other ways they were probably painful, I imagine. Uh, well, let's say that there should have been some processes put into place, but uh, when you're struggling to meet business deadlines, right? Like I was working on an e-commerce website and if you miss Black Friday, you miss Black Friday. There's, there's no push in that business deadline. 
Um, so that was a lot of what we were focusing on was just getting these features out the door, which meant that we were duplicating code like crazy. We weren't focused at all on performance or scalability. I remember one Black Friday, I mean, we ran a, you know, like a $2 million marketplace, which is a pretty large uh, application with a team of like 10. And we were so not focused on performance that we scaled out to like 150 servers out in AWS, which is absolutely absurd. But that was the only way we could handle these problems because we were so inefficient and and just had we were doing terrible, terrible things to MySQL that we shall never speak of again. We'll, uh, get, ba- we'll get back to that later. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's between me and my priest. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, learning to scale those those kind of human elements of those teams was was a challenge unto itself. And I think you're alluding to the fact that uh, you should have process. Uh, and we didn't recognize that early enough that we ran into a lot of problems that there was no division of labor. There was no real communication around these kind of things. And I think that's ultimately kind of what we're talking about is that we need some sort of useful amount of communication between the engineers, between the product teams, between the design teams and, you know, the sea levels and all that kind of stuff. And that's just something that we kind of missed the mark on, uh, which kind of just, it was reflected in the technology. It was reflected in the culture of the team. Um, and it, it did it did end up causing some problems. It has to be a balance, though, don't you think, Brian? Because one of the things I notice as I visit my clients is they're drowning in process. And one of the things that as a developer, I, I'm, I'm like, no, not another meeting, not another process. Don't tell me it's two weeks to deploy. So like you said, you had Black Friday and you had to deliver uh, real goods. So how do you balance those things? Well, let's make the two-part question. How did you balance those things and what would you do now differently in that same situation? Yeah. I mean, I think you're right, Ward. If you over-implement process too early, then people like resent the process, it becomes bureaucratic, and you have meetings about meetings, right? The moment you start having meta-meetings is the moment that you've gone way too far, right? I think the correct amount of process is uh, a little bit less than, than there should be, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's interesting. Did you do daily stand-ups or did you have anything that you feel is a process? You know, there's this whole kit from that comes from Agile and you can drown in that too. Mm-hmm. But is there some set of things that you say, these are my go-to processes that will get my team of at least 20 successfully to the goal? I th- you know, I don't think there that sort of toolkit would exist. It's got to be reflective of the, how the team wants to work, right? Like, I remember when I was working at Netflix, most of the company was on Jira, but my little team just hated Jira because Jira. <laughs> don't get me wrong. Jira is great, and it works at, like, large companies well. But for us, it was just, you know, filing these tickets and going through this, you know, crazy vetting process. It just didn't fit for us. So we, we switched to Trello. And that worked really well for that small team. And so I, I, the point I'm trying to make here is that you should really just sit down with, and try and fit the process to the team rather than fit the team to the process. Yeah. I think that's that's good advice. And something I found a lot too is when people say things like, and I said it too, like Jira or version one or any of these tools that track all the stuff we do or the old TFS, if your goal is to help your team organize what they're doing and make them move faster, more efficiently. Things like Trello, quite frankly, I feel like are perfect for that. Mm -hmm. But if you're looking to get reporting and analytics and figure out across an organization, you know, of the 5,000 developers we have, you know, which teams are moving at this pace or that pace, um, what could we switch up and move around? That kind of stuff, I think that's where like things like Jira and uh, other tools have better analytics side, but 
it really is that balance. And it's like, wow, how much, I don't think the systems are bad in Jira, honestly. And I, I don't necessarily enjoy using it because I've been on it too, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily the system. It's the way it's set up a lot of times. Absolutely. The 5 million check boxes that you have to put in before you can even move a thing from one lane to another. It's not made for developers, in my opinion, the way that that process works a lot of times. And I don't know the answer to that. Well, I think one of the answers to that at LinkedIn this time, uh, they actually hired like a real Jira expert. Like I didn't know that that was a thing, but apparently it's a thing. And so this person came in and reset up Jira to actually be far uh, less painful to use. Like it really just basically covered the things that we needed to track and nothing else. And it became just this horrendous part of my day to like, I'd rather deal with Jira than with email, right? Like we eventually got to that point, which was really cool. So investing in your tools, I think is another big part of doing this right. Whether that's, you know, my Reddit experience where it was very lean, like that's the kind of the methodology we observed rather than agile. It's just like the bare minimum amount of process to get by all the way up to, you know, LinkedIn, a giant corporation with a lot of bureaucratic process, just investing time into your tools to make sure that they're doing the things that you want to do and re- and reflecting what actual work is getting done. So beyond the tools, what about things like CICD and DevOps? When you're talking about scaling, talking about scaling Reactor, and we'll get back to React on this, but when is it the time for you at these places to introduce DevOps and to what degree? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I kind of have my junior DevOps merit badge from all the time I spent mucking around in AWS and with fabric uh, Python scripts and all that kind of stuff. And again, it was just kind of, I didn't know how to do CICD at the time. And if I had just spent a week, like a sprint or something on that, like setting up real continuous deployment, I would have saved myself literal days of my life. I'm always about adding new tools, like when you're a step too far, right? Like when it becomes so painful that you need them, because it I think premature optimization kills so many startups and companies and team cultures and all that kind of stuff. It usually introduces more problems than it solves. And so I'm all about optimization when optimization is needed. Almost like just-in-time optimization, yeah. Yeah, JIT for your team, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think that's uh, right right when it's a little bit too late is exactly when you should introduce it. Brian, that's a great point. Uh, Hold that next thought while we take a moment for an important message. Looking for developer-ready hardware? Intel has a wide range of hardware options for your unique project requirements or industry. Check out Intel's IoT-featured developer kits. Developed by Intel in collaboration with original device manufacturers, these kits enable system integrators to develop and scale their deployments using a range of kits built on Intel Atom, Intel Core, and Intel Xenon processors. RFP-ready kits enable system integrators to scale their deployments with options that have been deployed and tested in the field. Check out the Intel IoT Developer Zone to find the right kit for you. And we're back. You're listening to Real Talk JavaScript, and our guest today is Brian Holt, and we're discussing React at scale. Brian, we were just talking about, uh, you're making a point about DevOps and making it just in time. When you were working with React at these places on these projects, kind of go through some scenarios where you were building the React applications with DevOps, trying to introduce this at a lean company you mentioned, and then another one where you had more process in place. What kind of challenges did those different places present? Uh, every DevOps team is different. Some of them are super experimental, and you walk in there, and it's like, hey, let's do you know crazy stuff with Kubernetes and you know do container registries, and they're all like, yeah, let's definitely do that, and they get super stoked about it. 
Uh, other places are like, we have like this super slow JVM validation process that goes through all our review boards and like, like these like huge steps. It's like, Hey, I, w- I just want to put like a node server in production. And they're like, no, we don't, we don't do that here. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's very much fit to the, to the DevOps team that you're going to be dealing with. And I think in that case, you kind of have to pick your battles, right? Like the lowest hanging fruits that have the highest impact. Um, in that case, trying to put a, a node server out for me at the, this particular company was just a, a fruitless effort. It was not worth, you know, it wasn't a hill worth dying on. But getting our uh, deployment pipeline fully into CI and CD, like fully continuous integration, that if it failed prettier or ESLint or something like that, that it would reject the build, like those sorts of things. That was Those were hills worth dying on. Uh, so it's a largely fit to the DevOps team that you're working with. So you mentioned ES Lint here in the context of React. Is that something you recommend? And what's your experience been with that? Yeah. And so I think the next part about kind of scaling humans and scaling teams that way is keeping code quality high. Um, as you add more and more people, more and more corners get cut, right? Because they're going to look at your code that you wrote two years ago that inevitably is bad, right? In some respect, either the best practices have moved on or it was just bad to begin with, right? But uh, no matter what, as code ages, it doesn't age well, almost ever. So tools like ESLint, TSLint, TypeScript, Prettier, unit tests, like all these kind of things will help you keep your code quality high so that as time goes on, at least it's still adhering to some set of rules. And then as you change your linting or your prettier or your TypeScript uh, checking kind of things, um, it'll force kind of quote-unquote legacy code to stay in line. So at least it's still observing best practices. And so when you do have to launch things uh, quickly, you, your teams will still have to follow these coding guidelines. And they'll just get used to it, right? They'll get you so sick of fighting the linter that they just kind of give up and start writing code that way. So that's cool. Are, are you actually writing React in TypeScript then that you're, you're, you made that move? Uh, I do today. That's kind of my choice today. At Netflix, we wrote it uh, in Flow, which is, you know, similar. Uh, it's a type checking thing from Facebook. And honestly, either one's great. I like both of them a lot. But the point is you like to have some kind of a type checking thing as opposed to just writing in raw ES. Is that raw JavaScript, right? Yeah. Absolutely. The thing that I would keep in mind is kind of like the the developer maturity of your team. Uh, if you have a team that you feel like is full of people that would be on board to do type checking and are able to kind of grasp those kind of more advanced computer science concepts, uh, it's it's 100% worth it every single time. If you're going to be working with a bunch of, you know, fresh out of boot camp kind of developers that are going to be, you know, struggling just to ship code as it is, there should be some consideration there as well. What does that mean? I'm sorry. What consideration? Sure. Uh, the consideration being that fighting against a type checker is really annoying. It's annoying and it can even be hard, right? Because they can be kind of opaque, the errors that you get back from a type checker. You know, strict checking in, uh, this isn't any type and I don't know where the type is coming from. And then you have to import it from some library that you didn't know had these kind of different kind of types. And it's in a generic, so you have to pass in a second type, which has a generic itself, and you have to pass in a third type, right? Like, these are things that I've literally had to teach people. But if you didn't do that, and you let these junior fresh out of boot campers in there and, and free them from that, isn't that worse? Uh, I guess you have to qualify what worse is going to be. You're going to ship more code, and you'll probably have more bugs. So, it... it, it <laughs> 
It's going to increase okay. velocity, but you're probably going to. And have. that's the end of the show. You can write a lot of crap code. I face that when I'm doing code reviews. Uh, you know, it works. So do I let it slide because it works and I want to throw a bone in the direction of the developer? Or do I say, no, no, no. It's, you've really got to rethink this code. What, how do you play that one? Sure. So let me give you an example of when a type checker is silly, in my opinion. So specifically with React, when you're doing um, like event handlers, right, which look just like normal JavaScript event handlers, sometimes event.target can be null, but in the course of writing React, it's I've never seen it be null when I have expected it to not be null, right? But TypeScript says like this could be potentially null, so you have to check to make sure that event.target exists. Now, I've written enough TypeScript and React together that's just automatic for me. But uh, when I teach it to new developers, like, here's how you have to do this with TypeScript. Like, this is dumb. It's never null. Why am I have to do a null check first? So, it's stuff like that that kind of gets in the way of velocity of, like, if I didn't have that kind of thing there first, I wouldn't have diverted the developer's attention to solve this basically non-problem. Um but at the same time, now you're extra defensive, you're extra resilient, right? That'll never be a problem there. It forces you to think through all of the error cases, all the permutations. So you end up with a more resilient system and you end up, you know, preventing bugs that you otherwise would have had. So going back to your question of when do you push on them and when do you not push on them? I have kind of a, a mantra that that which you cannot automate, you cannot enforce. I think that's important. Can you repeat that actually? Yeah. That which you cannot automate, you cannot enforce. Now, you can have the best uh, pull request team that goes through and, you know, digs into things, but you're going to miss things, right? And so, if you're telling people, it's like, well, I want, you know, two uh, spaces instead of tabs, like, you can probably most of the time catch that, but if you're not enforcing that with Pretty or ESLint, it's going to slip through. And you're going to have, like, mixed spacing in pages, and you're going to have, you know, this one's going to be in tabs, and, that one's gonna be, and, like, that's a dumb example, but... Well, let me give you another one that, that I ran through once, because we hit one of people telling us, well, linters are great, but we don't want you to use process exit in Node ever. And there was no rule at the time we could find any linting tool or anything that would actually go through that. So we had somebody write an AST on my team to uh, go through, and basically what they, they basically do, ASTs will search through your code, through the trees, and look for the words, especially process.exit, and other kinds of things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, because you're right, they were slipping into production, and the last thing you want is a production app with millions of dollars flowing through it, or billions, just stopping working. Right. Just because John Papa, who reviewed this code, happened to miss those two words, right? Right. So, those are the places like, this is kind of passive aggressive of me, but I wrote a, a bot at a previous company that if you put uh, nitpicks in my GitHub uh, pull request reviews, it would just close them, right? So I just, I hate nitpicks. All right, give us an example. I got to hear this. <laughs> okay. Deep thoughts into Brian Holt's brain. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of them was this particular user, like, hey, I prefer that we call event handler function names by this and he said like nitpick please call it this you know function name instead of this function name and it was literally like just a dumb this person had a preference and that was it and so i got really so upset by this particular nitpick that i, I wrote that if you began your comment in, in github that it would just you know sh delete your comment from the pull requests 
because I think nitpicks are dumb. Like you're diverting someone's attention. It's often just feeding people's, you know, ego need to like comment on someone else's code, right? Yeah. Almost one upsmanship sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Like look what I know or look what like my preferences or, you know, I, I can't, I can't stand that. It's like, look, if you want to enforce that, write an ESLint rule that goes through and checks it. Otherwise, I'm not going to do it. So, yeah, what, what I think with pull requests is that those should be like for higher level, like architecture kind of things or like, hey, you rewrote this bit of code. We actually have this module that does this or, hey, this would be a good point to throw in a unit test, right? Those are the kind of things I want to see in uh, pull requests that actually make the code better. And you're not just, you know, hey, you know, you should have put a space between these parentheses or something like that. Like, I, I don't care. If you're too lazy to write, you know, a rule to enforce that, then I'm too lazy to fix this. So, Brian, I find it fascinating that you use Flow and TypeScript inside of React. Uh, it doesn't seem like when I talk to a lot of React developers, and I don't personally do React, when I talk to a lot of React developers, I don't hear Flow and TypeScript to be predominant uh, amongst them. Is Am I wrong on this, or is that – what's your feel since you got a better pulse than that? Uh, you know, I, I was curious about this before, and before it was definitely dominated by Flow. And I would say – I mean, I'm just stabbing in the dark here, but maybe – 10 to 20% of, you know, enterprise React projects were using some sort of type checking solution. And it used to be mostly Flow. And then I'm going to say maybe in the past two years, just with all the strides that the TypeScript teams made, that I think most people now are using TypeScript over Flow. Um, Flow has like React types built into it. So it was actually built to check React applications. Makes sense because Facebook built both of those. Uh, but now TypeScript is so great with React that uh, even my course, so I teach an intro to React course for front-end masters, I switched from using Flow to TypeScript for that course because predominantly I'm seeing people do that now. I don't know if a lot of people know this or not, uh, but if you've been in the Angular world, you may remember for a brief moment in time, the Angular team, before they decided to use TypeScript, were actually considering creating their own thing called AtScript, yep. which is a type-checking language for Angular. So it's not like Facebook was alone in this effort to create some kind of type-checking. Uh, I think it's pretty telling to see that Facebook and Google both were sitting there thinking, hmm, maybe type-checking is something that we should have in our large code bases. Well, and there was like Clojure Compiler, which read the JS docs types that also came from Google, as well as GWT just in general, right? Google Web Google Toolkit. Web Toolkit, Yeah. Wow. Yeah, which was writing Way back Java. Machine. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, writing applications that are going to be worked on for a long time, having types and being able to follow types is just basically almost documentation. Super, super helpful for, to have a code base survive a long time and not be terrible. Yeah, I would think that that is one of those scale things. When it was just you, you could maybe get away with it. But as soon as you start having a team, then communication about the code, particularly with team members coming and going, becomes paramount. And that's when a flow or a TypeScript is like, I don't see how that becomes optional anymore. But that's me. I remember when people said, well, you know, you're just using TypeScript because you don't understand JavaScript. <laughs> it's <laughs> and, quite the uh, opposite, I think. I actually think so, too. Yeah. So switching off of that, you know, what's interesting is that you had Angular experience and now you have this React experience. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of bubble up what you think are the React practices that really matter and that might be surprising to somebody who hasn't lived the React life for long or at all? Sure. I guess I should qualify my Angular experience. I quit writing Angular around when 1.2 came out, I think. Maybe a little bit before then. Okay, so it's AngularJS. That's not even anything like what we're used to here. So that's fine. Right. 
What are the things you should do? Well, and to qualify that a bit, just so folks know, Angular 1.3, I think, is when things started actually getting really good with Angular. So, <laughs> that's I can see why you might have gotten out at that point, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there were components yet. I think that was, uh, no, was 1.3, yeah. Animations weren't even mostly part of it. You could still create global functions that just existed. Oh, yeah. I yeah. did that. I did Me that. too. <laughs> <laughs> even back then, it was pretty fun to work with. I still had a great time writing Angular. And so, I, I will never, never disparage that or, or the new stuff that they're coming out with as well. Uh, but surprising things that are coming out, having written Angular, for me, it was kind of a shift from having these like big scope objects, which I, I know I, I think those have gone the way of uh, the yes. dinosaur as well. <laughs> Uh, kind of these kind of, but it felt more like a backbone, which I, I wrote backbone previous to that, uh, of trying to emulate the MVC, right? The model view controller of the backend, right? I was also writing Django at the time, so that was a very familiar pattern to me. Uh, and shifting it more to a component-oriented model of like writing these components, which compose other components, which compose other components, which I think is also going to be familiar now to an Angular or an Ember or a Vue developer. But that was a paradigm shift for me. I was used to pulling in a bunch of directives and kind of learning those DSLs of those and then linking them together using the scope objects and such. But honestly, at the end of the day, I think you end up writing them the same way. You want to have these kind of loosely coupled reusable components that kind of stack inside of each other neatly. You want to write uh, isolated, pure functions that are easily testable anymore across all the major JavaScript frameworks. Like we're all kind of striving for the same things using slightly different syntax. That's another great point, Brian. But guess what, Ward? What, John? It's time to pay the bills. Let's take one moment for another important message. Progress is the creator of the most comprehensive developer toolkit for building modern apps on the market today, Telerik DevCraft. With more than 1,100 Telerik.net and Kendo UI JavaScript components and controls, you can easily build modern, high-performant web, mobile, and desktop apps, as well as chatbots. The toolset also includes reporting solutions, automated testing and productivity tools, and comes with a range of support options. With thousands of demos, with source code available, comprehensive documentation, and a full assortment of Visual Studio templates, you'll be up and running with Progress Telerik and Kendo UI tools in no time. Download a free 30-day trial today at www.telerik.com slash realtalkjavascript and check out the latest controls, themes, and features just released this month. And we're back, listening to Real Talk JavaScript with Brian Holt, our guest today. And we were just talking about React. And you're making a point about components in React and your experience with them. Yeah, so I th something else I was interested in talking about in terms of scaling a code quality of a code base at all of my companies, without exception... You go in there and you look at there's like two megabytes of CSS and you're only using maybe like a hundred kilobytes of that on any given page, right? It's kind of a huge problem in terms of trying to keep your code quality high is like when to delete code. And it's, it's something I've constantly thought about because I hate having dead code because it adds cognitive overhead when understanding your code base, right? You have to go through and understand why do I have this component? What does it depend on? When should I import it? Like, is this still in use, right? Like, just the fact that it lives there at makes your code base harder to reason about. Uh, and then it's also adding page weight if it's ever being imported anywhere. For example, CSS, right? You'll have this massive style sheet that you, you import despite the fact that you're not using any of it. So something that I think I heard uh, at a conference forever ago, and I don't. I wish I could tell you who said it, and I don't remember. Is 
optimize your code for deletability, which forced me to like reorient myself in terms of like features and things like that to think about like when I have to pull this out later, when inevitably I have to refactor this later, how does this come out? How am I going to know it's going to come out? How do the tests come with it? How does the CSS come with it? And it kind of forced me to rethink the way that I structure my projects. I used to have my JavaScript in one file or folder, all my CSS in a different folder, and all of you know my assets in another one. And now with React and the way that uh, Webpack or Parcel or any of those can put them together, you can actually have everything live in one directory, all the tests, the CSS, the, the JavaScript, and then its subcomponents can you know be folders inside of that. And that's really great because as soon as you stop using a component, guess what you can do? You can delete the entire directory and everything goes with it. All the subcomponents, all the tests, CSS, and all that kind of stuff. I've been working on, you know, off and on for a while, something that'll actually go through your project and find things that are never being imported and exported and just ask you if you want to delete them. Because <laughs> my favorite thing in the entire world is uh, opening PRs that have more deletions than additions. Because that means that almost without exception, you've made your code base better. Wow. I think you just hit on something that Ward and I have been saying to each other for years is we would figure to leave and, and literally clap ourselves in the back when Ward or I would create PRs in our own code bases where we had more lines of code deleted than added. And not just in that, but you look at like the number of the high committers in open source repos and you'll see like Ward Bell's name and you'll see total lines added, negative 20,000. <laughs> and that's a badge of honor in my opinion. I think so. Yeah. That's 20,000 less lines that could break too. Yeah. It's not good if you're paid by lines of code. You know, lines <laughs> of code. That's tough. It's tough. I have to give money back. <laughs> that, that's why he's an indentured servant forever. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's really good advice. So we've, we've gotten into this world of components and things like that and components within components. I confess I, I, to me, the question of MVC is orthogonal to that. Mm -hmm. In other words, my components themselves are sort of organized in a, in an MVC-ish or MVStar-ish style, but I'll leave that aside. One of the things that I find curious about React, and I mean that not as a judgment, but I mean I'm curious about it, is how you deal with communication up and down the component trees and across component trees. There's many applications. You have things that you want to do the same way and everybody should do it the same way no matter which component tree they're in. So this business of how you communicate up and down, which all you know from the outside just looks like you're passing property bags up and down, is something that we handle that differently generally in, in Angular. So I'm curious about how you see that and how also you approach getting your developers to do that in a common way. Yeah, I mean, that that is kind of the, the age-old question of React, something that we didn't really have a great answer for at the beginning. And then we've kind of iterated and iterated until we've landed on a, you know, a couple of good solutions, in my opinion. I mean, we started with nothing at all and just having everything live at the root component and just passing everything through. And you kind of end up with the, the prop drilling problem where everything has to know about everything, which is a problem, right? It makes them super interconnected. Is that where you have like a grandfather component, which has a child component, which has another child? So you could drill down through props through like five or six levels of components? Right, exactly. Okay. Prop drilling. Otherwise known as scope, if you ask me, from <laughs> AngularJS. Essentially, yeah. Which which also means the intermediate components could read the data, which may not be what you really want. Right, absolutely. So we ended up with Flux after that, which was Facebook's attempt of doing like a central store. The problem with Flux is that coordinating amongst stores, because you'd have like, a, you know, 10 stores that would all, you know, a user store and a 
cart store and a product store, uh, coordinating amongst the stores was impossible. So we ended up with Redux after that, right? Uh, and Redux is like, okay, one store to rule them all, and we'll just keep everything in basically one giant object. And I'm going to say that Redux is still useful most of the time. The problem with Redux is that it's just a hard thing to work with, keeping all of your stuff together and like learning the reducers and learning how to do you know side effects through something like sagas. Like you have to teach generators to your team. Like all that stuff can be really tough. You just said about 20 words that I think some people are going to go, whoa, uh, <laughs> my brain's really full right now with... <laughs> With Redux. Yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of the point, is the, the that Redux will just fill your brain up with a lot of stuff, and it's uh, it's, it's quite difficult. Uh, to even Like for me, and I've been working with it for years, and I still look at some of these libraries and like, this is just too tough. And normally it's overkill, until it's not, until you do need it, and then it's just hard, right? So where do you start then? If where you end up sometimes is Redux, where do you start? Or, or were you about to tell us about something that's better? I was about to tell you about something that was better. All right, let's go. <laughs> one more step here. We landed with 16.3, which is one of them. I think we're on 16.5 as of today. Version of React, we have something called Create Context. Uh, so there was an old context API for React. So if you used it in 15 or before, it's totally different. I like to think of it as like a portal that you can have like your root of your application, keep track of some layer of state, and then you can feed that into an entry portal or a provider portal is what they call it. And then anywhere in that subtree of that particular portal, you can get what's called a consumer, which is like the exit of that portal. You can say, hey, context, I need the user information and I need the cart information. And you can just pull that out of the consumer. The reason why I really like this is... It forces nothing in the middle to know about what's happening. It works still very much in a very React way that you still are dealing with state and props and that kind of stuff. And context is just a, a thin layer on top of that that you're just throwing things into the context and pulling it out of the context, uh, again, using just state and props. And so, again, you don't want to use too much context. For the most part, React state and props are, are really great. But sometimes just what you're talking about, coordinating amongst uh, like components with, you know, app level data like user, you know, logged in information, context works really, really well. And that's what I would uh, advise people to to use. That's awesome. That's not just for data, right? Suppose I had some kind of messaging thing that I needed to use or a spinner to turn on or off. In other words, it can be a live thing. It doesn't just have to be dead data, right? Yeah, it can be both for sure. I mean, Redux makes claims to solving other problems having to do with how you share, you know, having a single pattern for complicated as it is, how you manage that state. But do you think that this is the right trade-off that you lose the complexity and yet you still get what you need? Do you think this is going to just, is a Redux replacement or do you see it as a way of working side by side with Redux? I would say you'd probably use one or the other. And I would say for 95, actually I'm going to go with like 99% of use cases, context will serve you better than Redux will. There are still very, very specific use cases that Redux or MobX or like, which are like more central state kind of libraries will solve for you better than context. And that's generally if you have like really complex asynchronous like orchestration of, you know, data. Like I have to make this call to this API, which will then cascade to like these three calls to these three APIs, which will then cascade to, you know, filling these caches and animations and that kind of stuff. Redux will solve that better. But for everything else, context is going to solve all those problems. So you're saying it's simpler, it's easier, and it's better. Yep. That's it. That's that's the sum of the story. 
All right. You heard it right here. All right. Hey, Brian, I want to thank you for coming on here. We have a final segment of our show, though, that uh, we're introducing into this, and that is the Someone to Follow. We're all about the community, and a lot of people have affected our lives in the community and made things better for us. So we wanted to use this segment for each of us to kind of point out somebody in the community that is worth following because they wrote a great blog post or tool or just something that's really awesome. And to kick things off, I'll, I'll let, we'll go around the table, but I will kick things off by mentioning our good friend Max Ward. Uh, oh, yeah. NG Wizard, right? Is that what he goes by? That's what he goes by. Max is amazing. He, uh, not only in the Angular world, but in other worlds as well, what this person does is he reads the source code of major frameworks to try to figure out how they work. And then he blogs to explain all the intricacies of what these frameworks do. Uh, and his posts are just amazing. And we'll put in the show notes links to where you can find his content. But it's just absolutely amazing. Um, and where you can follow him on Twitter. Uh, kudos to Max. I've learned a lot by reading his stuff. And he's just a all-around good person. Ward, do you have someone? I actually do. It's another friend of ours named Rick Strahl. And he's been programming forever, and he writes very practical blog posts about all kinds of topics, including HTML, JavaScript-type topics. And he wrote a recent post that, well, I, it was May, but it's still, you know, saw how some of these posts sort of bubble up uh, and become more relevant later when people talk about them, about how JavaScript has really evolved over the last years, like really fast. And HTML and CSS don't seem to have improved at anything like the comparable rate. And that that leaves us in a kind of a hole because... We're either forced to buy a big control suite to do the kinds of controls that we want to put on the screen, or we have to write them in these very primitive HTML, CSS stuff. And we keep writing the same little widgets over and over again. And it was a pretty provocative piece. It's kind of a call to arms on that. And someday I'd like to have him on to talk about that. And of course, Brian, who knows? Maybe you think this is a solved problem and it's just easy. We just, you know, the rest of us just don't know how to put HTML widgets on the screen. That's true. Some <laughs> magic thing, right? We just don't know what we're doing. You know, but if this rings true to you, Rick really goes into it. Cool. For my person to follow, my name's Nicolina Huebner. N-E-C-O-L-I-N-E-S-A-N. That's her Twitter handle, at Nicolina-san. Uh, she goes by Nico. She's written a bunch of great blog posts over the year. Uh, she's worked with people like Tracy Lee at This Dot and Modern Web. She was an engineer at Google Fiber, and now she's working for a company called, I think it's, they're called Rise. They are building software for refugee camps. And I know right now they're focused on refugee camps in Kenya, so they're doing some really, really cool stuff with that. She has a bunch of you know great blog posts and uh, just an interesting Twitter feed in general, so I would, I would implore you to give her a follow. That's great. And uh, you'll send us her Twitter and or her follow information, and we'll put that in the show notes. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the first episode here. And Ward... Thank you very much for being my co-host on this show. I'm really glad that we're doing this. And Brian, it was really wonderful to hear your pain and your <laughs> uh, your success and the things that, you know, th there's things that can be done about all that. Uh, uh, there was lots of gems in here. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. And thank you all for uh, listening to us on this episode. And we'll be here every Tuesday in the morning. And we'll be releasing this as a weekly podcast episode. And if you have any questions you want to hear read out on the show in our mailbag, please follow us at RealTalkJS on Twitter. That's RealTalkJS on Twitter. 
You can follow us. You can just talk with us or just follow Ward Bell and John Pop on Twitter and definitely give this gentleman, Brian Holt, to follow as well. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks for listening to Real Talk JavaScript. This show and all of our shows are available at www.realtalkjs.com with links and notes. John and Ward would love to hear what you think, especially about potential guests and topics for future shows. Follow and send them a message on Twitter at RealtalkJS. Real Talk JS.